I appreciate Bishop Aquino's restraint because the man can preach. <laughs> and uh, wonderful man of God with his wife and the work that they're doing over there. Praise the Lord. Let's pray as we prepare to get into God's Word because as with so much lately, the, the things that are, that are in my heart to share what I believe are in God's heart to share with us this morning, there's nothing we're going to hear that I don't believe we've already heard before. But the question is, have we heard it? Jesus says in a number of places, at the end of each of the letters to the churches in Asia Minor and in, in, in Revelation, He was ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And He said something different to each of the churches. So although we hear the words, I'm hearing things in my heart at a level I've never heard them before. Uh, and it's not a heavy, deep revelation. It's just waking up to face what God's calling us to do and what that means. I've been a Christian for over 40 years, and I'm just seeing things in, my, in me, in my life, that, I, that, that God is working in me like I've never had Him work in me before. I don't see at, at the age I'm hitting that this is a time to just look at it and say, well, I'm done. I'm just going to sit on a beach. It just, I love what Lafayette said. You need to listen to that again because God's working in every one of your lives and there are seasons of the seasons God's working in and some of you he's moving from one season to another and some of it he's just preparing you for but how we go through that and he did a wonderful job of that but he's not doing it so that you can sit on a beach but to finish your course as Paul said I'm being poured out as a drink offering finished empty everything God's put in you and put for you to do is poured out and that's what God's calling us to do So, Father, we thank you today as we come to your word. We rely upon the precious Holy Spirit who's not just in us, but is here among us. Because Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in his name, there is he in our midst. And he's here by the Holy Spirit today. And, Father, we turn, there's something you want to say to us. Not just information, because in most cases, this is information we already have. But you want to touch our hearts and move our hearts. We've seen in your word, Lord, when people truly hear what you say to them, their response is always, what must I do? And Father, may your word touch our hearts today. May we see who you've made us to be and what you've called us to do. And Father, for what you want to do today, I cannot do this in my own understanding. I cannot even do it for myself. It's only by the presence of your spirit and the anointing of your spirit upon this word, first of all, and then upon the words that are spoken. But may the anointing be upon our ears that we may hear what the Spirit is saying to each one of us individually as well as what He's saying to us together corporately. And so we trust you to do that, Father, today and for Him to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Open your Bibles with you to Mark chapter 4. And we've started several weeks ago, although we've been preparing for this for some time, a journey together that I believe God wants to take us personally as well as together as a church. So to take us together as a church, He has to take us there personally. And although there will be various different side currents and side paths and various different uh, uh, ways of walking this out, the way the Spirit of God works, that although we may walk it out differently, we'll walk it out together. And so that's not the right graphic. So there's another graphic that we had up there, which is follow me. So... Um, anyway, don't pay attention to the graphic. Just listen to the words. So we've been looking at 
what Jesus, how the, the journey that the Jesus' disciples had with him, because it's not just a model, that we're, we're, they're, they're the founding of the church. There we go. We're part of the same church that they founded. You know, the book of Acts isn't over yet. It's still being written. And this is being written here in Seekonk. It's being written around the world by the church. So we're looking here, we started to look over the last few weeks at Jesus' call, the call to his disciples. And we're going to see here, this is just to have the starting scripture this morning, Matthew 4.18, for Jesus walked, and Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, this is our, this is our series, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then it goes on, and he does the same thing with James and John, Zebedee's sons. So we're looking, we looked last week at four different accounts of this call, of the call to follow him. We looked at the one in Matthew here. We looked at the one in, 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 um, uh, in, in Mark. We looked at the one at Luke. And, looked, and then John, John's account's a little different. He gives a little more of the background. The account in Luke gives a little more of the background of calling Peter because it tells us the story of where they were out fishing and Jesus comes and uses their boat and when he's finished using their boat to teach he, he, he tells them to go out and throw their net down and, and when they obeyed him they got a greater revelation of who he was and then when Peter gets this revelation sees who he is he falls down and he says uh, depart from me for I am, I am an unclean man and Jesus, it's interesting when he sees that he's unclean now Jesus calls him to come and follow him. And we're not going to go back over that, but I just, we, we've looked at these four, and, and, and each of the invitation is the same. It's simply two words, follow me. Last week we spent our whole time looking at that word follow. And, and these are simple words. I, I, if we gave a quiz this morning of those of you who've been around for more than six months, you know, what did Jesus call us to do? Yes, follow me. But it's, we need to spend time just settling down and letting the Spirit of the living God open our eyes to see what it means to follow. And we spent time doing that last week. And, and many of the things we're going to do going forward will be learning how to do that together. Follow, and then today we're going to look at me, who we are to follow. We saw that follow was, was so simple, it's easy to miss it. You don't have to know where you're going, you don't have to understand anything except who am I to follow and keep our attention on him. And we used, Denny did uh, his great example of follow me was I wandered around the stage. And then we looked at, at the children of Israel in Numbers chapter 9, when God comes down in a cloud uh, by day and a fire by night. And then he, the, he told them to follow him, which was wherever his cloud went, he went. When it stopped, he stopped. When it moved, he moved. As long as he stopped, they stopped. As long as it moved, they moved. It's that simple. And that's what follow is. You don't need to know the destination. You don't need to understand anyone except who am I to follow. But today we're going to look at who is this that they were called to follow and by extension, who is it we're called to follow. So we're going to look at four basic points here. He who called them to follow me, he called them into a personal relationship with him. Everyone Jesus called, he called into a personal relationship with him. He doesn't say, follow my doctrines. He doesn't say, follow the church. He doesn't say, follow Peter, James, and John. He says, follow me. It is a personal invitation. Periodically, I get in the mail, as uh, those of you that are a little bit older, uh, more mature, let's put it that way, 
we get invita- I get invitations periodically from people doing, wanting to sell different kinds of insurance, so they're, trying to, they're setting up a little seminar, so that I get an invitation from them. And it's worded in a very personal way, except you know it was printed by a computer. And so, although it says per- personal, you know it's not personal. This man or woman's secretary was told to put together on a mailing list and just send these flyers out, hoping somebody bites and comes to the seminar, which may be a fine thing to do. But this is really a personal invitation. It may be given to all, but it's personal to you. One of my favorite scriptures in the Old Testament that really helped me go through the treatments I went through for cancer several years ago is in Isaiah 43 where God's speaking to Israel. He's saying, I formed you, I, I created you, I formed you, I have called you by your name. God gave them a name. And, and whether you realize that or not, Israel is not the name of a country. Israel is the name of a man who God changed from Jacob to Israel, and everyone that's born out of him is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now Israel. So God refers to his people on the basis of a name of a man that he formed a covenant with. God deals in the personal. So they were not called to start a church. They were not called to follow a movement or a cause. They were not called like the other the rabbis we talked about last week when, when rabbis would have followers around them called disciples and they primarily followed his teaching. They may or may not have had a very personal relationship with him but they sat under a teacher, a rabbi. But Jesus called them to so much more. It may have started out as that but his purpose was to call them into a personal relationship with him. Though he is the Son of God and though he is the Messiah, and he was those things when he called them, he called them to follow him as Jesus. He is a person. It's easy for us to think of him in many different roles, and he is in these roles. He's the Messiah, he's the Christ, which is the same thing. He's the Lamb of God, he's the Savior, he's Lord, and many other things, a great teacher. But he's a person. And he's called us into, called them and us into a personal relationship for him, with him. Each of us can study and learn and worship one of these titles, him in this form. But he wants us to love him and he wants us to worship him as a person. So let's talk about what, why it's important that we realize that he's a person. And again, this is so basic that if I asked you, was Je- is Jesus a person? Oh, of course he is. But how do you relate to him? How do you relate to him? Do you relate to him as if he's a person? Or do you relate to him as if he stands in an office? And we're going to talk about what it means to be a person, and, and we're going to move that over to Jesus is these. And so we need to recognize in a relationship with him, we, have to ex- we can expect these things in this relationship. A person has characteristics that are different from an institution and different from a movement and different from a cause, or even different from what most people think a church is. A person has emotions, they love, they can get angry, they can get frustrated, they can be, they can be sorrowful. In John chapter 2, verse 13, if we have that scripture. Now at the Passover the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. 
And he found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers doing business. Stop there a second. What you're going to see, his reaction to them, is not because they were there, it's what they were doing. They were there because people would come from all over uh, Judaism, and they would come to make their offering. And they came with the, co- the coins and the money from whatever country they came from. But the, the temple had its own, its own currency. So they had to convert it into the temple's currency. Kind of if you go abroad, you've got to convert your dollars into pesos or whatever country you're in that doesn't use dollars. And so there were money changers there to exchange that money. And that's not what Jesus was upset about. They were charging an exorbitant rate for changing. They were taking advantage of the position that they were in. And they were doing this to make money in the Lord's temple, which was there for worshiping Him. And we have to be very careful about that. Because we can't be about what we're about here for the purpose of making money. Whatever gifting God's given you, this is really true of those He's given a musical gift or some gift that's marketable in our world, in our society, even if that's what God calls you to do to use it, your main purpose cannot be the making of money because then we're converting something God gave us as sacred and we're using it for profane purposes. This is why He was angry. Verse 15. And when He made a whip of cords... Somehow he took cloth or a rope or something and he, he makes it into a whip. And he drove out of the temple, them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the, the, charger, poured out the charger's money and overturned the tables. I mean, he's having a fit in there. He's going in, he's driving them out with his whip. Then he takes their, drives the animals out. He takes the, ta- the money, the tables with the money and just flips it over. He's angry. Yes. Yes. We're looking at him as a person. And he got angry. Now he's not angry for himself. Most of us, when we get angry, it's because somebody does something to us. He's not angry for himself. He's angry for his father's house. There was a place of worship. Well, he'll tell you. Let's go on. Verse 16. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away and don't make my father's house a house of merchandise. Verse 17. Then his disciples remembered zeal or passion for your house has eaten me up. So Jesus was passionate. And here he's angry at something that's defiling a temple. There's a holy place for God. Matthew 17, let's go there. Verse 17. Jesus has been on the Mount of Transfiguration with with three of His disciples. And He's been transfigured and experienced the glory, His glory again. And He's there with uh, with Moses and Elijah. And then with those three disciples, and He comes back down and there's a commotion at the bottom of the mountain. And he goes over to see what it is and there's a man who's brought his son who's, who's, who's possessed by demons and he throws himself into the fire and he rises and does all... You know, modern people say, what's well, probably epilepsy. It could have been, but Jesus said it was the spirit behind it. Many of our diseases have physical manifestations, but there's a spirit that's behind it. The woman that was bent over for 38 years probably had some kind of arthritis, but Jesus rebuked the spirit and she stood up. I don't want to belabor that anymore. 
And, and so Jesus comes down from this wonderful experience on the mountain and there's this commotion and this man brings his son over and Jesus wants to know what's going on and this man said, I brought your, my, my son to your disciples to cat the demon out and they, listen, they could not. That was nine of them. Now notice what Jesus doesn't say. I'll be careful I don't go off here. Jesus doesn't say, well, since they prayed, my disciples prayed and he didn't come out, I guess it wasn't God's will. So apparently Jesus didn't discern God's will by the result of the prayers. Apparently Jesus didn't discern what was God's will by whether their prayers got answered or not. Apparently Jesus didn't decide whether it was God's will or not by whether they got healed or not in the answer to the disciples' prayers. His answer was, bring him to me. And that's what precedes this. And Jesus answered and said, Oh, faithless and perverse generation. He's talking to his disciples. He's quite a boss. (laughs) How long shall I put up with you? He's frustrated. Jesus got frustrated. Jesus got frustrated. Angry. We have this milk toast picture of Jesus just walking around with a lamb on his shoulders all the time, just speaking soft, gentle words of love. We're not going to go to what he said to the Pharisees. He called them names. You're a bunch of, you're, you're whitewashed sepulchers. That's a tomb full of dead man's bones. Okay. Luke 10, 21, Jesus has just uh, commissioned the 12 to go out, and now he's commissioned the 10 to go out, and they've come back reporting that even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus corrects them and says, that's great, but don't get too excited about that. Get excited and said that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. He's bringing their focus back to what's important. And then it says, in that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and said, Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and revealed them to the babes, even so the Father seemed good to you in your sight. He rejoiced. He was joyful. So Jesus was sorrowful at times. Jesus was angry at times, excuse me. Uh, he, he, got, he got angry. He got frustrated. Uh, he rejoiced at times. Matthew 26. This is as he's in the garden. He's preparing for his arrest and what he's about, his passion he's about to undergo. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and this is in the garden, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, verse 38. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. Stay here and watch with me. You see his humanity there facing what he was, knew he was about to face, let alone the physical abuse that he was going through that most men did not survive, let alone the, the rejection and humiliation he was going to experience, but the spiritual separation from his father for a while. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was because the sin was now on him. So here he's sorrowful. Over in chapter 11 of John, he weeps at Lazarus' womb. womb. He leaps. Blah, 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 blah. He weeps at Lazarus' tomb. 
<laughs> That's okay. Hold the applause. It's a good thing I don't do this for a living. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the peace of the... Fa- <laughs> I better... Ju- before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come that he should depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. That Greek word end means to the limit. It also means to the end of time. But it means to the limit. He held nothing back from them. So we see that he got angry. We see that he was sorrowful. He got frustrated. He was joyful. And we see that he loved with everything in him and everything he had. So that's what a person does. He has that personality. So Jesus has a personality. A person can suffer. A person can think. A person can, uh, can communicate. A person has their own will. Jesus had his own will. In Matthew 26, 39, in his prayer to his Father, he said, Not my will be done, but your will be done. He surrendered his will to the Father. So the one that the disciples were called to follow, although he was the Christ, the Messiah, the, the Lamb of God, slain for, for, the sin, for the sins of the world, he was the, the, the Messiah, he was all these things, he was still a person. He was a person. In, um, uh, okay, here we go. Now, let's talk about what a relationship is, because he called them into a relationship. A person is someone you can get to know. You can have a real, living relationship, dynamic, organic relationship with somebody. And if you've noticed, in a, if you've been in a real relationship, like you, we've been married 52 years in July, so it's a relationship. It's gotten stronger and stronger and stronger through the years and through the things that we've been together, the joys and the sorrows and the, the frustrations and the good times and the bad times. By coming through them, it's developed a stronger and stronger relationship. And the strength is there every day, but the experience of it can change. So there's some days we get up and we may feel closer to each other than other days. There's some days she may be in a place where, you know, I've got to adjust to where she is or may she may have to adjust to where I am. Now, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but he's a person. He's a person. He doesn't have moods because these aren't moods. Moods about you. A moods about how, I never said this before, a moods about how things affect you. This is a passion for others. A passion for others. So my point is that a relationship is dynamic, but it grows stronger and stronger and stronger. This is why I've asked the question several times that I felt God asking me, do you know, is Jesus more real to you today than he was a year ago? If he's not, and I don't mean just this day, but now, a year, from a year ago, then, then, then your relationship with him is not growing and it's increasing. And if it's dynamic, see, this is what happens to people in relationships. If you're not growing closer, you're going to drift away. You have to work at it. You have to, we're not there because we've just kind of existed for 52 years. We're there because we've worked at it, sometimes harder than others. We've worked at it. And we're going to see where Jesus challenges us to work at this relationship with Him. But I looked the definition up of relationship yesterday, and one of the definitions I saw, this is all in the notes you can download. A relationship is the way in which two or more concepts, objects, or people are connected or being connected. A relationship is the way in which two or more concepts, so concepts can have a relationship with each other, 
objects can have a relationship with each other and people can have relationships with each other because the relationship is how you're connected together or becoming connected which is why we have connect groups so you can develop a relationship with people in the church inanimate objects like this pulpit and this floor they have a relationship with one another the pulpit's standing on the stage but they can't have any kind of intimacy with each other because although they have a relationship together they cannot relate together they cannot experience that now I know this is very teachy but I'm going somewhere with it so just bear with me but people can have a relationship, a connection that develops an intimacy that develops a closeness that can increase that become more meaningful and, more st- and stronger or on the other hand it can grow weaker and it can drift away don't spend much time with this but you, I assume many of you have people that were in your lives years ago that you were very close to did a lot of things together and now you barely see them or even think of them anymore even though they're still around you've drifted away in the relationship you have a relationship with them but it's not the same as it was because some of the intimacy has faded away because it needs attention in order to grow only persons can have an intimacy so the first thing we've looked at is that the, the one that called them and the one that's calling us is a person. Second point, Jesus takes this relationship as personal to Him. As He takes it personally. That means that what he's, in His view, whatever happens to you happens to Him because He sees this relationship as personal. In... Um, and we don't have time to go, as we go through this series, we will develop these points a little bit more. So I, I, don't, I don't want to get sidetracked. Oh boy, I could. Okay. Acts chapter 9. Paul's conversion. And Saul, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any there who were of the way, that's what the church was called back, believers were called back then, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around about him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now this has happened probably, theologians believe, maybe ten years after Christ has been raised from the dead. So he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And his, it's the church members that Paul is going to arrest. But Jesus speaks to Paul and says, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting me. See, Jesus doesn't see us as a church. He sees us as part of Him. Not just belonging to Him, as part of Him. We are the body of Christ. That is literal. That's not some symbolic image. We are His body on the earth. 
So what happens to his body, he considers as happening to him. And here it's bad enough that he has to stop this man on his horse, knock him off his horse, and say, why are you persecuting me? Now imagine what that must have sounded like to Saul, let alone the fact that it's a voice out of heaven and a blinding light at noonday. Because Saul was sincere in his persecution. Saul believed that this was a heresy, that this was trying to undermine the, the, the law of Moses, and Moses was worshipped as equivalent, almost equivalent with God. And Paul is determined because he sees this as a heresy. He's so passionate to keep the purity of the law that he's going there to arrest and persecute and perhaps have executed these heretics. But the only issue is who this Jesus was in his mind. Because he claimed to be the Messiah and the Jews did not believe he was the Messiah. Now the Pharisees were simply jealous. They didn't care whether he was the Messiah or not. They were jealous of him. Paul was sincere. And so when you're sincere, God can change your mind and get your attention. When you're jealous and you're worried about you, it's very hard for him to do that. And so the whole issue was who this Jesus was. Paul was believed that he was simply a heretic, that he was a rabbi that had died that started an insurrection and that was still going on and he's trying to destroy it. So when Jesus addresses him, he addresses him to reveal who he is. In other words, he's calling Paul to follow him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you? Lord, Saul hears this as a personal address to him by a person. He just can't see him. The Lord said, I am, imagine what this must have sounded like to Paul. I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. Jesus is in heaven. It's the men and women that are believers in him that are in Damascus that Paul is going to, but Jesus says, I am Jesus that you're persecuting. Jesus takes this relationship that he's called us into is a personal relationship to him. You are personally important to him. And he called you personally to follow him. I've said this so many times. If we had time this morning to give testimonies of how you came to the Lord, we would hear a different story from each person because he found whatever it took to reach you to call you to himself. Verse 6. The next verse. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I've told you, every time you really hear from God... Your response is, what do you want me to do? And he said, arise and go to the city, and you will be told, you will be told what you must do. Okay. Matthew chapter eleven twenty eight. we go to this a lot of times. Jesus says, come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden. He didn't say, go take a vacation and go sit on the beach, although there are times that may be necessary for your rest. But he said, come to me. Come to me. It's a person. Everything, we're going to see this. Everything comes out of our relationship with Him. 
Here's a long, Matthew 25. This is one of the most, we're going to spend some time in this down the road. But there's one part of this I want you to see. This is just before he's arrested. Matthew 25, 31. And when the Son of Man comes in His glory, the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory, and all the nations will be gathered together with Him. And He will separate the one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right hand, Come you and be blessed of My Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Why? For I was hungry and you gave Me food. I was thirsty and and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, or, or give you a drink? Or when did we see you a stranger, and take you in, and naked, and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick, and, or in prison, and, and come to you? We don't understand this, Lord. Verse 40, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Why? For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. I was naked, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and not minister to you, Lord? And he said unto them, Inasmuch as you did not do it unto the least of these, you did not do it unto me. So Jesus takes what we do or do not do for one another as doing it or not doing it unto him. This is why it's so deadly to be in strife with your brethren. Because if you're in strife with your brethren, you're in strife with Jesus. Well, they did this wrong me. Romans 14 says, How can you judge another man's servant? He, may, he, can, he can either have them stand or fall, and he will have them stand. When you judge another believer, you are judging Jesus. The way you t- we treat one another, he takes personally. Now, don't get hung up on whether this means you go to hell or not. You've got to take the whole Bible's counsel together. The point here is, whatever we do for someone else, especially a brother in Christ or sister in Christ, Jesus takes it personally as we've done it or we've not done it unto Him. Revelation 2. We talked about these letters last week a little bit. Jesus is writing to uh, to the church at Ephesus. And He's told them all the good things that they've done. And He says, nevertheless... I have this against you. Now, this, this really hit me yesterday as I was looking this over. I have this against you. He talks about all the good things they've done. They've resisted evil. They've discerned the good apostles from the... They've, they've discerned good teaching. They've done... But he says, this is the one thing I have against you. That you've left your first love, which was Him. So apparently Jesus holds our personal love for Him important enough that when we don't walk in that love, He has this against us. I'm not saying He's angry at us, but it's that important to Him. 
that you've left your first love. Now look at verse 5. So here's what you do. This is good, by the way, by the way, this is good counsel for you that are married and you feels like your relationship's going stale or, or, or you know, you're, just fit, you know, you're kind of taking each other for granted. That's what Jesus is saying here. You got so busy doing things for me, you've forgotten about me. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Remember what it was like. Repent and do the first works again or else, look at this, or else I will come quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The lampstand refers to the anointing, the presence of God that allows us to see spiritual things. So Jesus is saying, you can do all kinds of great things for me, but if your passion and love for me is not there, eventually my anointing will leave because the anointing we're going to see in a minute is tied directly to our relationship with Him. It's not because we belong to a church. It's not because we're Christians. By the way, Christians means Christ's follower. It's not a name of a religion. It means little Christ. It means Christ followers. Getting quiet in this Presbyterian church. All right. Praise God. Okay, so the first thing we talked about was that it's a person that we've been called to follow. Secondly, he takes this relationship with him as personal. He takes you as personal. What happens to you, it's personal to him. And what we do with one another is personal to him. The third thing is it's only this relationship can satisfy the longing of your soul. Only this relationship with him. Christians that backslide are because they've lost touch with their relationship with Him or never really had it, and they're doing things for Him. They're coming to church, they're giving, they're serving maybe, but they've lost their, they're lost their passionate contact with Him. So we're doing the same things, but lost why we're doing it. We're taking Him for granted. John chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Here's this woman, not even that, she's not a Jew. She's hated by the Jews. She gets up one morning to go out and collect water. But because of her reputation and her background, she can't go with all the rest of the women, which is first thing in the morning. So she's got to wait till nobody's going to be there because nobody's going to be there in the middle of the day because it's the hottest part of the day. So she has to pick the time when nobody else is going to be there. And she wanders up there with her water pots just like she has so many other days and there's this man sitting there. And she can tell immediately he's a Jew by his garments. And she goes to draw water. She's, first of all, it was not proper for a woman, uh, an unaccompanied woman to speak with a man. And Jews had no... We don't have time to go into it. But Jews had no business with, with Samaritans because there was a racial issue. But there are no racial issues with Jesus. And so we're going to pick up in verse 7. And a woman of Samaria came near to draw water and Jesus said to him, her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. That's what they were concerned with. When's the, mass, when's the service over so I can go eat? <laughs> then the. <laughs> do any of you ever have that thought? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Not so much now, but it used to be near the end of the second service thought would run through my mind while I'm right in the middle of preaching my heart out. Where are we going to go eat? (laughs) Moving on. 
Verse 9, Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me a drink, a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealing with Samaritans. And Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Water in the Bible refers to life. A river of life flowing out of the temple. Life because you can go without food for a long time, but water is essential. Breath and water are essential for life. For refreshing. It represents refreshing. Satisfying the, the, the deepest urges within us. That thirst. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. And the well's deep. Where will you go to that living water? Are you greater than Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank of it himself, as well as his sons and livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain springing up under everlasting life. In other words, I'm offering, because he then goes on and she says, give me that water, and basically ends up, he introduces himself as the Messiah. He gives himself to her. So this living water represents a, a, a source from within us that satisfies the deepest longings and thirsts of our life. And it's only, it's only in Him. God made man to live on a personal relationship with Him. That's the fuel that God made us to, to survive on and to thrive on. And in the beginning, Adam and Eve had an open and intimate relationship with God. They held nothing back from Him, and He held nothing back from them. The great early church father, St. Augustine, wrote this, You have made us for Yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in You. And yet we try to satisfy and fill this thirst, this need, through many counterfeit sources other personal relationships. They can be good, but they won't, cannot take their place. This is what's wrong in so many Christian marriages. We're trying to satisfy that need with our spouse, which means we're trying to make our spouse into our God. And your spouse cannot satisfy that deepest longing. They can enhance it, they can, they can help, help complete it, but they can't satisfy it. They can't satisfy it. So we can have this attitude, my goodness, if, I, you know, if I'm not married, I can't make it. Or if something happens to my spouse, I can't make it. If you have Jesus, you can make it. Amen. You can have the most wonderful spouse in the world. You can have the most wonderful friends in the world. But without Jesus, you're never going to be fully satisfied. It's only satisfied in a personal relationship with Him because that's how God designed you. That's how God designed you. So we also try to fulfill this thirst, this hunger inside with the desires of our flesh, with food, won't go there long, drugs, alcohol, entertainment, sex, all of these things, some of which are good within their boundaries as long as we're not using them for the purpose that Christ has come to us. Paul talks in Ephesians 3, he said, I've come and preached among you, verse three, eight, chapter 3, verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And the fourth point is our success in fulfilling what He has called us to do depends, listen carefully, completely on maintaining 
this vital living relationship. John 15. Part of Jesus' final instructions to his staff. We'll just go chapter, verse 1 through 10. I am the vine, true vine, Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. So he's not talking about whether they're saved or not. Abide in me, and I in you. Now the Greek word abide is meno, which means to maintain a living, vital relationship with. To maintain a living, vital relationship with. Abide in me, not in my church, not in my movement, not in my organization. Abide in that living relationship. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine or maintains this living, vital connection and relationship with the vine. Because the branches that didn't bear fruit had no living, vital relationship with the vine. We have some big trees in our yard. And we've had times when the wind has come through and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a branch will fall off. And when you pull it aside and set it aside, eventually the leaves just start drying up because there's no source of life flowing through it. At first, it just looks like the same branch. It looks like the same leaves or maybe the same fruit. But it has nothing. It it cannot generate that life from within itself. That life only comes from the source of life, the living water, which is the vine or the trunk and the roots of the tree. Unless... It abides, abide in me. A branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide or maintain a living, vital relationship with me, says the Lord. If anyone does not abide in me, he's cast out as a branch and not wither and withered. And they gather them and throw them in the fire and they burn. But if you abide in me and my words abide on you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I got lost here. If you abide a bit, okay. Yeah, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So you'll be my disciples. As the Father's loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in me. And, my, I, and I will. So one of the ways to remain in Him is to love one another. In fact, you cannot abide in Him and not love one another. Okay, we've got to move on. Finally, I want to go back to something. I'll go back to that at the end. Satan, this is the fourth, Satan sends many distractions to pull us away from following him personally. It can be the work of the ministry. I've shared with you before, I have more difficulty praying in church as the pastor than I did when I was a lawyer 
because I knew I was, had only one hour at lunchtime, and I used that every day as a time to read my Bible, and I used it every day as a time to go walk and to pray. When I'm in here, I can get distracted very easily by things going on that need to be attended to. And so there are many distractions. Now with cell phones and dumb phones and smartphones and all the other phones, we're so easily distracted. But we can be so easily distracted with with, with church things. I don't mean being full-time ministry. I mean just you can be read your Bible, you can pray. We can do all of those things and not be connected to Him. Because we do them out of a routine. Or we do them to feel good about ourselves or so that He'll be pleased with us and not because we love Him and we want to be close with Him. I said in the beginning, in, Re- in Revelation 2, we just read some of it, said they left their first love. Which means they were walking in at one point and they got distracted by the good things they were doing and they wandered away. I said in the beginning that call to follow Him, and this is what we, the thing, most important thing to see out of this. He's calling us to follow Him personally. To follow Him personally. Not a program, not a way, not a church, not a principle. Those are all good. To follow Him personally. He's not even, listen carefully, but listen very carefully. He's not even called us to do good things for Him. But if you follow Him, you will do those good things because He's doing those good things through you. Very important distinction. And Jesus makes that distinction in Matthew chapter 7, in verse 22, when He's talking about, you know, many will come to Me that day and say, Lord, Lord, and, I, and, and they'll say, depart from Me, I never knew You. He said, because He said, you will, but you'll, they'll say to Me, but, but Lord, uh, didn't we do great things in Your name? Didn't we cast out demons? Didn't we do great works in Your name? And He says, depart from Me, I never knew You. You did great things, but I never knew you. And you never knew me. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Because we're going to find out that in order to walk with Him, we can't be lawless. Because obedience and following Him are two sides of the same coin. But we'll go there down the road a little bit as we continue to go down this journey. So what are we saying today? These, last Sunday and this Sunday is just laying a foundation. Everything we're going to do going down this road together is to learning how to follow and to follow Him as we do this together. And He's given us His Spirit to enable us to do this. So we're going to begin to talk next time. Oh, we've got Christopher Alamas here next week. We're going to begin to talk next about this call He's calling us. What is the call? How do I recognize the call? How do I know whether He's calling me or not? Just because I sit in church, does that mean He's calling me? We'll talk about that. We'll talk about what He's called us to do and what He's called us not called us to do. Because it it is a call. It's not something you can sign up for because you want to. He has to call you because you will not finish it if you don't hear His call. But that doesn't mean I'm getting ahead of myself. That doesn't mean you're going to hear words. All right? Everybody okay? Yeah. Okay. The most exciting thing. He's calling you to follow Him. He's the most exciting one that's ever lived. 
I said the first Sunday we talked about this, I look at the disciples at the end of their, his ministry with them, and I don't see them afraid. Oh, they were in the upper room because he left, but when he comes back and he appears to them and he commissions them, I don't see them afraid. I don't see them walking around saying, I wonder what this is going to mean. They have seen him and they're consumed with him and following him. And this is what God wants us to get a glimpse of. Just a glimpse of. He's standing here today saying, you, 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 by name, you, follow me. Follow me. I know we're all together as a church, but you follow me. You follow me. You may not have confidence you can do this. Well, a pastor can follow him. I'm just what you are. I'm, I'm only a few steps ahead of you in this. I'm learning as we go along. But that's what sheep do. They follow him one step at a time. So he's calling you. He's calling you. Let him who have ears to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit's saying to us today. Jesus, I'm confident that this is what you're saying to us now because it's right out of your word. But also as I listen to others who have a similar responsibility to mine, I'm hearing you touch their hearts with the same words. I believe with all my heart you're calling your church as a true shepherd does and her sheep hear your voice to lift our heads off of where we've been grazing and where we've been going and to begin to hear the voice of the shepherd, the sound of the shepherd, simply saying, come, follow me. We've gotten our, uh, we've gotten our, our appetite into many different things as, we, as sheep have grazed around in a church. But now it's time, because the shepherd's beginning to move. It's time to move from where we've been personally, where we've been as a church, as the shepherd begins to go out, that we may hear your voice, O true shepherd, and we may follow you where you are going. For you don't send your sheep out, you lead them out. Because we cannot go anywhere without you, and we cannot do anything apart from you. So may we hear your voice more clearly. We may hear the call and sense the call inside more clearly. We thank you for the precious Holy Spirit who you've made to dwell in us, to help us and to guide us and to direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.